we are, as I said, going to be talking about the tabernacle, and it is one of my favorite things to talk about. I have a lot of favorite things, so, um, but it is amazing to me because over 50 chapters of scripture are dedicated talking about the tabernacle, and yet it gets so little attention when it comes to, you know, what we learn in church. Nobody knows anything about it, and yet 50 chapters are talked about it. Now that tabernacle later becomes known as the temple, as you'll see here. So this is the tabernacle, and that's the temple. And what I want you to see is that in the tabernacle, you had the very first thing there, there was basically a fence around it that was made up of curtains. Then there was one door that you can't see here, the only way you could get into it. First thing you ran into was what was called the, the altar, um, uh, the brazen altar or the uh, sacrificial altar. So every morning, twice a day, there would be a sacrifice done on this altar here. Then you had this, um, uh, some called, it was called the laver. Um, it was basically filled with water and the priests would go in and had to wash their hands and feet before they could go into what was called the holy place. So this out here where these two pieces of furniture are is called the outer court. And then next becomes the holy place. And it's kind of hard to see in this picture, but there was a curtain that separated then the holy place from the most holy place. And the most holy place was the one that the high priest went into only that one time a year on the Day of Atonement. Just to get a little bit of a layout here is what we want you to see. Now later, the temple, when the tabernacle was taken down and they built a permanent structure in the days of Solomon, it's the same thing, it's just a permanent structure rather than tent. And it was, in some cases, things were larger as well. But the same symbols and so on. Now, where did they get this? Did the, the you know, priests just get to make up what they wanted to do? Not at all. We know that the Bible tells us what this is all about. And God told them how to make it. It says in Hebrews 8.5, there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the, uh, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see to it that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. What's neat about that is when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, everybody today thinks Moses brought down the law but he also brought down the blueprints for the tabernacle. And so, in essence, we see that the tabernacle is going to be a picture of the gospel. And so, when Moses came down, he brought down the law and the gospel. He brings both down with him. But everybody gives him credit for the law. The law, the law, the law, the law. That's all we hear about Moses. We like to divide those things up so neatly. You can't. You need them both. Today, oftentimes, it's just become the gospel. Get rid of Moses. Well, then you get rid of the gospel, too. Because the law and the gospel are together. So again, as we've said many times, Jesus is the law. He is the gospel. He is the word. He's all of it. 
Now, I've kind of showed you this here not long ago, so I'm going to go over it real quickly just to remind those maybe who were not here before that God told them, the Israelites, to camp directly north, south, east, and west of the tabernacle. We also see in the Bible it tells us how many people are in each tribe. Three tribes were north, three south, three east, three west. When you add up the total numbers, you can see here about 108,000 there um, that were up top and then 186 below and so on. If you would make a little tent icon, it would look like this if you flew over the tabernacle in you know, the times of uh, the Exodus. So it is a picture of the cross. And that is basically you know, telling you what the tabernacle is about. Remember Hebrews 8.5 told us here that it was a shadow and copy of the things that are in heaven. In other words, it's a copy of heaven. People love to talk about heaven, what it's going to be like, imagine what it's going to be like, and yet nobody wants to study the tabernacle. Well, maybe we shouldn't worry about what we hope heaven to be, but that we should worry about what the Bible says it's going to be. So anyway, we will discuss that, but I just want you to remember that the tabernacle um, does not show us just the law of God as many Christians feel it is. They see the sacrifices that were supposed to be done day after day after day. When you think of Moses and the tabernacle, everybody's mind is in the outer court. That's it. They rarely think about what was in the most holy place, and they'll talk about the holy place, or most holy place a little bit because once a year, the blood of the sacrificial atonement was put on the Ark of the Covenant. But even the Ark of the Covenant we're going to show you isn't just about the law of God either. Not at all. There are many different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, and even the direction of how they were laid out was in the shape of a cross. Now, we're going to talk about these pieces one at a time, so I'm not going to take much time to get into it. But first and foremost, as I said, there was only one way that you could get into the tabernacle or the temple. One gate, one door, no other way. Now, keep in mind, what's the tabernacle and the temple a picture of? Heaven. Guys, there's one way to get into heaven. There is no you know, back door. You can't go under, you can't go over. There is one door to get into heaven. And the Bible tells us clearly who that is. Yeshua. There is one man uh, by which a man may be saved. The man Jesus. This whole idea that the tabernacle was all about works and law, and in order to be saved, you had to do these sacrifices and you had to do all of that to be saved. No, the Old Testament sacrifices never brought salvation to the Jew. But how many times do we hear that that's how you were saved in the Old Testament, by the sacrifices? No, you weren't. Otherwise, all the Jews would have been saved. And yet they weren't. It is no different than what people might look at you today and think that you're trying to do, you know, you know, keep the Sabbath or whatever in order to be saved. No, you're not. Just because people think it doesn't make it true. Right? You see, the tabernacle, these sacrifices that were done in them day after day, yes, it was to obey God, but they were pointing to something. Pointing 
to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate priest, the ultimate temple, Jesus. Remember Jesus said, tear this down and th in three days I'll build it up again. And the Jews are like, what? It took 46 years for us to build this thing. You're going to build it in three days? No way. But they didn't realize the temple he was talking about was his body. And that is what this is all about. Jesus. So, just like those sacrifices didn't bring salvation but pointed to what was salvational, likewise, when we keep the Sabbath today, it is not for you to be saved. It's pointing us to He who gives us that Sabbath rest. Pointing us to that rest that only Yeshua can give. So, very important. One way into heaven, no other. So if you go to a church that teaches you that you have to do something in order to be saved, run. Unless they're saying you have to believe in Jesus. Okay? Works do not save. Never did, never will. The other thing is it was only on the east. This picture is seen throughout all of Scripture. This isn't just a tabernacle thing. Do you remember that the Garden of Eden is also a picture of heaven? In the Garden of Eden, gold streets. Heaven, gold streets. In the Garden of Eden, the throne was in the, you know, God's seat. He was, he was walking among man. The tree of life in the middle of the garden. What do we see? Heaven, the throne of God in the middle of garden. That he being the tree of life. The river of life. All of these things. The Garden of Eden was a picture of heaven. How many ways could you get into the Garden of Eden? One. And where was it? On the east. One gate that allowed you to get into the Garden of Eden. When they got kicked out of Eden, God put a cherub there to make sure that they couldn't get in or else they could have access to the Tree of Life, Yeshua, and live forever. So, east, biblically speaking, is a direction of you know, blessings. So, west, it's interesting that when we see Cain fled from God, he goes west. Michael W. Smith wrote that book, Go West, Young Man. I think he missed it. It should be Go East, Young Man. <laughs> okay? So, in Jerusalem, you have the Golden Gate. The Golden Gate is on the east. And... There are gates all around Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not heaven. But what's interesting is that the eastern gate is believed to where the, the Messiah, when he comes back, he's coming through that gate. So the Muslims, as I've said before, have bricked and closed it up so that to try and keep the Messiah from being able to return, this Jewish Messiah. And they planted a cemetery. I don't know if planted is the right word on that, but uh, they put a cemetery in front of it to keep or basically defile it. But as I always say, they don't realize that our God is the God of the living and the dead. That won't stop him. All right? He's the one that raises the dead. Jonah, when he tried to run away from God, fled to the west. So there's a symbolic picture we see throughout the scripture, not just in the tabernacle, of this type of thing happening. So as John 10:9 says, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
This temp, uh, temp, temple or tabernacle was a picture of Yeshua, a picture of heaven, and there's only one way. It is that simple. Now, notice when you go through this gate, the very first thing you're going to see is what? This brazen altar. This altar of sacrifice. It is the only place you were allowed to make a sacrifice. As a matter of fact, the Bible says this in Leviticus 17 about this altar. It says, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or a lamb or goat and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle, that man shall be cut off from among his people. You were not allowed to make a sacrifice any other place. Remember, God speaks over and over against high places. Only in Jerusalem and only on this altar was there to be a sacrifice made. He was pointing to something. If you want to sacrifice in order to get rid of sin, you won't get it but one place in Jerusalem, you know, when the temple was built, and on one altar. Again, one way, Jesus. Jesus is pictured by this altar. We'll talk about these horns that you can see. Notice those horns. Sometimes they say they use that to tie down the, the um, animal on the altar and so on. I don't think that had anything to do with tying down animals. I think it's a picture, as we'll talk about later, of the power of the gospel of God. Horns are a symbol of power. And there's a power that is going to be displayed here. Now, Acts 4.12 tells us this as well. There is salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than Yeshua, Jesus. So, if you tried to make a sacrifice somewhere else, you're cursed. You try to get into heaven some other way than Yeshua, let's call it Buddha, you're cursed. Muhammad, you're cursed. Good works, you're cursed. The Virgin Mary, you're cursed. There is no other name, no other place, but the cross and Jesus. Now, as I said, there were these walls around it. I'm not going to talk very much about that outside of, like I said, you can't go under, you can't go over, just through the gate. Now, even these... The, the pins, the ropes, every aspect of this temple, I can show you verses that will talk about this being basically God. Being tied with cords of love and, you know, uh, everything. I'm not going to get into the fine details tonight because as it is, I don't have time to talk about what I even have planned here. So, What's neat about this altar is what it's made of. It was made of wood, which seems like a really dumb thing to make something that you're going to light on fire every day. So what did they do? They covered this wood with bronze. So oxygen couldn't get into it, but it was wood being covered by bronze. Now, it's interesting because scripturally, bronze is a picture of two things, divinity and judgment. When the Lord comes back, he has feet like burnished bronze. He's going to be trampling and judging. Wood is something that's consumable and, and uh, 
Uh, oftentimes they'll say is a picture of humanity, the flesh. Well, Yeshua, Jesus, came not just in the flesh, but as full man and full God. That's what Scripture tells us. He was full wood, you might say, and full bronze. Divinity and humanity. And that is what we're seeing here in this two thing, I believe. Two different materials. Now, Jesus was not allowed to see decay. God says, you know, in, in the Psalms, that you, you would not let his Holy One see decay. Why? Because the divinity of God protected the humanity of Yeshua. Likewise, the reason this wood did not burn up was because it was covered and protected by, you might say, divinity. By this bronze. So, judgment as well, as I said. In Revelation 2.18, it says, These things say the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass or bronze. James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in just one point, he's guilty of breaking all the law. I've had people say that to me like, you know, so um, if you, you keep the Sabbath, huh? Yeah, well, I, I, I do. I try to keep the Sabbath. Well, what's it matter? I mean, you break one law. If you tell a lie, you broke that law too, right? So what's it matter? Well, does that, basically to, to use that argument is to say, oh, well, what's it matter if your wife goes out and, you know, has an affair on you? It doesn't really matter. Might as well run out and kill somebody. Right? Might as well run out and kill somebody. You know, what's it matter? <clears throat> you know, those really evil things will say, yeah, no, you need to obey those. But these things that just honor God, why do you do that? Doesn't make any sense. Well, we're not doing these things because we have to. We're doing them because we want to. Christ has taken the judgment, the punishment of that. You'll never be able to keep these. You, you, break, you stumble in one point, there is judgment. There is judgment. If you don't keep the Sabbath, you're going to hell. If you steal, you're going to hell. If you tell a lie, you're going to hell. If you don't have somebody to take that judgment for you. Yeshua is that person who comes and takes that judgment. We all know that. Okay? The point being is that judgment was placed on this altar in order that you might be saved. And it is judgment that is going to come down on this altar of, on Yeshua in order to bring you that freedom so that the law would not have any condemnation, any punishment for you. We have those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for them. That's because of this altar. Okay? Now, we're done. I mean, at least if we're in regular, normal Christianity. I mean, that's all there is to Christianity. We're done. 
Isn't it amazing? I mean, God could have saved himself a lot of time and it could have, you know, they could have built this tabernacle very quickly because this is where modern Christianity stops. Hey, you go through Jesus, accept his altar, done. Well, what's all the stuff beyond it? Doesn't matter. You're saved. Done. Could have been a pretty small tabernacle, small temple. But God didn't stop there. Why? Because this ultimately from here on out is why you guys come to bible study every week because you see yes you're saved by the blood of jesus but you know what i want more i want the life of christ i want life abundantly i want sanctification this holiness to continue to well up in me and to continue to grow closer to him. I want to know God more. I don't want to just know who he is. I want to I want to be like his best friend in the sense that I know everything about him. What he likes, what he doesn't like. You see, we have to go further into the temple or the tabernacle to have this relationship with God. I believe in many churches there are people who are saved because they have gone through the door of Jesus. They have accepted his sacrifice on that altar and they have stopped. And these Christians are those who are depressed, sad, lost. I've told you this before, but in that prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples, he goes on and he says, If you obey my commands, I will remain in you and you will remain in me. And he goes on and he says, I have told you this, that your joy may be complete. John 15 or 17, I always forget that. You see, God wants your joy to be complete. And you will not find happiness and joy in this life. I promise you, if you're going to just stop right here in the tabernacle, you will not find it. You will be depressed. Life is not going to go your way. Now, I am not preaching a name it, claim it gospel here and say, hey, come to Jesus, all your problems go away. Obey Jesus and all your problems go Oh, no, you're going to have problems, but I'll tell you something. You will deal with those problems differently and you will have joy even among those trials and tribulations. That's the difference. I am telling you right now, you will have problems. Jesus told you, you will be hated because of me. You will be persecuted because of me. But take, take comfort in this. They hated me first. They hate you because of me. I would rather go through the problems and be able to deal with it than go through the problems and not know how to deal with it. So, if you want abundant life and the joy of your Christianity to be sanctified rather than just be saved, from here on out is for you. I want you to understand that, by the way, this fire that came down on this temple, or this uh, bronze altar, who made it? Man did. God said, you guys go make it. They made the tabernacle, or the, the, uh, the altar. 
God told them what to do, but they had to put it together. But who lit the fire to burn up the, the goats and the sheep and whatnot? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought how hard it is to light a goat on fire? <laughs> Do you still have some? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they didn't have their Bic lighters. You know, rubbing some sticks together to, uh, you know, light a cow. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to try it. How did they light this stuff on fire? Well, they didn't. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the fire came down from heaven. It says, look in Leviticus 9.24, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat of the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the first time when the fire came down. Solomon later builds the temple. Go look it up. Same thing happens. Solomon didn't light the fire. God brought the fire. The fire was a picture of judgment on the sacrifice. Yeah, man built the altar, just like man built the cross that they hung Jesus on. But listen, Jesus said, you're not putting me there. I'm giving my own life. And it was the judgment of God that fell upon Yeshua. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't even the Jews. They wouldn't be there if it wasn't for God. It was God's judgment on Yeshua. God's judgment on sin. Yours and mine. This was such a serious thing that you guys aren't the one that can judge sin. That Remember Aaron and Abi, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? They were priests. And one day they went and offered unauthorized fire. Fire that wasn't from God. So fire came down and consumed them. All new rule, no drinking. Yeah, 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 new rule. That's right. So I think that's a very important distinction to make as well. And once that fire came down, they used the coals from that altar. Even when they moved around, they would bring the coals with them. And that fire was never to go out. Judgment would never cease because ultimately, just like for us, forgiveness is always available because of the judgment placed on Yeshua. Yes, you will be judged. The question is, will you be judged and say, oh, I see the blood of Yeshua, the blood of Jesus, or... Oh, I see all your good works. Sorry, not good enough. Because I saw you screwed up over here. Everybody will be judged. Yes? Did that fire go out after Babylon came? And it did. Okay. And so, again, when they rebuilt the temple, same thing. Every time fire comes out of heaven to when the temple was dedicated. Yeah. The yeah. And that's why... You have to understand that when the temple was destroyed, guys, that was, that was worse than your house burning down. I mean, that was the ultimate. Because this wasn't just taking away a physical possession. This was taking away your access to God. 
That's why this is such a serious thing for the Jews when the temple was destroyed. I don't think we can quite really even relate. So, as I said, man made the cross. Man even put Jesus on that cross by his permission, you might say. But it was God's fire, God's judgment that came down on Yeshua. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, the act of the sacrifice didn't save the Israelites. It was the faith in the act, the faith in what it stood for. And that is why, because they weren't faithful. How did God know if they were faithful? If they were following him. And they didn't follow him. Oh, they sure, they, they still did their sacrifices. But then they would go sacrifice their kids too. They would go to the high places and do all these other things. And if it was the sacrifice itself that saved, they would have been saved because they did them. Keep doing, yeah, yeah, there was many differences, you know, between that and what, you know, they, year after year, Jesus once for all. But the sacrifice was still an integral part of Yes, yep, yep. Isaiah 53, 7. Just kind of showing you that Jesus did not, you know, or we, man didn't uh, bring the judgment, but God uh, well, you'll see here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is compared in the New Testament and the Old as that sacrificial lamb. And he voluntarily gave his life, as Hebrews 9.26 says, he, um, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The scriptures, I mean, I could give you many examples of scripture pointing that Jesus was this sacrifice that these Old Testament temple sacrifices were pointing to. As I said earlier, the horns on this altar, I think, are more representative of the gospel I say that 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They don't get it. But to those of us who are being saved, what is the message of the cross? The power of God. Psalm 18.2 talks about God being our shield and the horn of my salvation. This altar is a picture of salvation, and the horn of salvation is ultimately the gospel, the power by which we are saved. Romans also talks about the, the gospel and the power of God in the gospel. Now, there are many differences, as you were saying. First of all, Jesus died once. These animals had to be sacrificed day after day. Hebrews 9, verses 25 through 26. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year, day of atonement, by the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the age, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, in the temple, in the tabernacle, there were no chairs because the priest's work was never done. Day after day, they were busy. 
from, well, all day, 24 hours a day, even in the night, they had to keep the fires going. But Yeshua, as our priest, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See the difference? Jesus is a better sacrifice, as verse 23 says in Hebrews 9. It was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, the tabernacle, should be purified with these blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Jesus, the Lamb of God, His blood. Now, before we go in any further as well, I want you to understand that if you would have been a Gentile or Egyptian or whatever, and you went by the, the, the tabernacle, you would not have been impressed. Ugly. It had a drab outside. It was covered with animal skins and a tent around it. No big deal. This was not a crystal cathedral here. Well, what's it a picture of? Heaven and Jesus. Jesus is eternal life. Heaven is eternal life. Well, do you know that the, uh, the unchurched today, the ungodly, when they look at Christ, when they look at what you believe, you know what they see? Nothing. Nothing of any value. As a matter of fact, they think it's foolish and ugly and stupid that you follow Christ. Because the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you can't see the beauty of God. You couldn't even get into the tabernacle without being, you might say, born again. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I tell people, you know, sometimes they read the Bible and they don't understand it. Now, believe me, there's a lot of it that I don't understand too, but sometimes these are people that are usually saying this who really don't have any relationship with Jesus at all. This ought to scare the living daylights out of you. Because if you're not understanding the scriptures at all, you're still a natural man, not born again. And the reason you don't get it is because you're, you haven't found Jesus yet. And if you haven't found Jesus yet, you are going to hell. And I hope you don't die tonight. If you can't, if you don't understand the gospel and Jesus... It means the gospel is veiled to you. You're not saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 if, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So, before we get too far again, just to give you the picture of it, the door, Jesus, the altar, the cross, the sacrifice put on the altar. Jesus, again. Okay. Notice in front of this altar is another little bra uh, bronze, but it's called the, the bronze laver. 
We'll look at that in a moment. The walls around it are very important as well. The Bible tells us how big they were, how wide they were, all of this kind of stuff, uh, what they were made of, how they were to be mounted on. Here's a little picture. What I want you to see is how they were kind of put together with these tendons. There were silver bases, and each piece of wood had two tendons, little you know, protruding dowels, you might say, out of them. And so what they would do is one dowel would go into one of the silver bases. Each silver base had two holes. So one of the dowels went in one of the holes of this silver base, the next base, the other one. So it kind of held them together. And they did that all the way around the base or the foundation of the tabernacle and temple. World's first Legos. World's first Legos, kind of, yeah. Now, the other thing is, they're building this when they left Egypt and they're out in the desert, in the wilderness. Where'd they get all the silver? Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians. We'll talk about that more later, but God says in Exodus 38, the silver obtained was one becca per person. That is half a shekel from everyone who had crossed over. A total of 603,550 men. Now here's what's amazing about this. You're going to see that this is, the silver that is collected, is basically a, an atonement price. Um, I'll give you some scriptures here coming up. But it was the price that you had to pay for atonement. In other words, well, I'll do it this way first. If you take all of these, and I'm not going to go through the math with everything, but if you add up all the silver that the Bible says, we know that each one of these bases weighed about 100 pounds each. We also know he's going to make some silver clasps. If you add up all the amount of silver that is used, it fits exactly to this much, how much they were supposed to collect, which is significant. The, the money they collected is the price of atonement. So what do you think the silver is a picture of? The price of atonement. What is the price of atonement? Yeshua's blood. Right? Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it upon the altar to make atonement. Yet the Bible says that silver was the price of atonement. As a price of atonement, you have to give me this much silver. It was the cost of atonement. 1 Peter 1 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by traditions from your fathers, it sounds familiar, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, or without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sins, no atonement. And yet then in Acts chapter 20, it tells us how Jesus purchased us. Shepherd, he says, shepherd the church which he purchased with his own blood. The price of purchasing us was the blood of Christ. The price of atonement was the silver. 
and the silver becomes the very foundation of the tabernacle and temple later. You also have the holy place and the most holy place being covered. There were four coverings. The first one that you couldn't see from the outside, the only way to see it was go on the inside, was this linen, fine linen, engraved on it these cherubim, the angels that were on the Ark of the Covenant. After that, you had a covering of goat hair. After that, you had a covering of ram's hair or ram's hide dyed red. And after that, you had porpoise skin, sea cow skin. Well, again, the linen with cherub in it is interesting because we're going to see that this is going to be a picture of heaven, what's in heaven, God's throne, what's in the tabernacle, God's mercy seat, his throne, what's on the throne, cherub. So we see the same thing. Every time you see the throne of God described in the Bible, you see the cherub there. So wherever you see the throne of God as a pictured here on earth in the tabernacle or temple, the cherub were to be there. And that's what we see in Scripture. Remember the throne of God in the Garden of Eden. What was there? The cherub. The next one was goat skin. Now goat skin, when we think of goats in Scripture, you think of sacrificial animals. On the Day of Atonement, there were the two goats, the sacrificial goat, the scapegoat. <clears throat> John the Baptist also wore hides, you know, skin of goat skin, goat and camel skin. But goat skins and things like that are pictures of repentance and sorrow. And so what we see, it seems to be, is a, a sacrifice and perhaps even repentance. On top of that, a ram skin dyed red. Another sacrificial animal, the ram. Remember, there was a ram caught in the thicket when um, Abraham was to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him, and God says, nope, just it was a test, but there's a ram. So again, pointing us to a sacrifice. And then finally, the porpoise skin. Drab, ugly, served a practical purpose you know, a protection from the sun and if it ever did rain or whatever. But I think most of all, the fact is, all the pretty stuff was covered up. The outside was ugly. Let me tell you, that's the same way it is about Jesus. And you guys can go witness all you want and say, hey, Jesus loves you. He's really pretty. Nobody cares. They don't care if Jesus loves them until they know I need Jesus. I don't love him because he loves me. I love him because he loved me enough to die on the cross and he took away my sins. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says of Jesus prophetically, he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When Jesus came, to put it bluntly, he was ugly. Jesus was not a handsome man. So these pictures you see of Jesus on the wall where he looks like a soap opera star, not accurate. He was not attractive. 
The Bible tells us this. So, the other thing, and I think probably, at least scripturally, pretty easy to prove, the porpoise skin, what was its purpose? Well, the Bible tells us some amazing things when they leave Egypt. They're going to wander the desert for 40 years. The Bible tells us that they made their shoes from porpoise skin. It says in Ezekiel 16.10, I clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Shoes were made of porpoise skin. They just plundered Egypt. They're bringing the gold, the silver. They're bringing the porpoise skins. And God says, give me your shoes. Give it to me. It would have been very easily for them to say, hey, we're going to need this. But instead, they give it gladly. And so what does God do? Go read Deuteronomy 29. It tells us that their shoes never wore out for 40 years wandering out in the desert. And their ankles never swelled. I love that. You see, God has blessed us with things too. You know, sometimes you guys say, hey, thank you so much for letting us use this place and blah, 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 the sacrifice that you're doing here. No, it's not a sacrifice, folks. This isn't my house. This belongs to God. <laughs> no, it's not hers either. Yeah. It isn't ours. Never was, never will be. It belongs to the Lord. And if God says, I want to use your stuff, then he will bless it. And you know what? My feet are not going to swell and my shoes will not wear out. I think that's the picture in part here too, is that God was asking, he says, I have blessed you, but I want you to use it for the kingdom of God. I could go on with that, but let's get to the laver. In Exodus 30, it talks about this, and I'm not going to read it all. You can see it up there, but before the priest could go into the holy place, they had to wash their hands and feet. You guys have done Seder meals with me, and you know that I've talked about this because this represents our walk with God. A, a clean, it's with our hands that we serve God. Let me tell you something. You Christians who say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I accept that sacrifice, but you have not washed your hands and you're not serving him? You haven't washed your feet so that you're walking after him? Don't expect to see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of Christianity. You won't. Can't see it. You will never see it until you start obeying. Again, it doesn't save. You've already been saved. You, you went through the door. Well, I'm going to show you a couple of things here first. Number one, where, the, the bronze, but where did they get the bronze? Yes, Egypt. However, specific bronze. Anybody know where the bronze came from to make this laver? Mirrors from the women. Exodus 38.8, he made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors 
of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. It is specific to the women's mirrors that makes this. Why? I think, guys, you can tell. Women, vanity is usually a big part of a woman's personality. Okay? And it transfers over to the husband half of the time. You can't go to town wearing that. Right? I remember my dad being told that all the time by my mom, and now I live it out. You, you know, that is not a town shirt. Change. Huh. <laughs> you see, men typically don't care about our appearance. The point being is this. God is saying, I want your vanity. I want your flesh. I want you to die to self. I want you to die to your cares and the things of this world. And when you do that, and you wash your hands and feet, and you start serving me and walking after me, I'm going to open up the world to you. What does it, though? It's the water that washed your hands and the feet. I mentioned this here the other day. The Jews see the water being a picture of the Word of God. They, or literally, they see Torah being the water. In other words, what washes you? Not the water. Torah washes you. The Word of God washes you. The other thing is this laver was not just bronze covering wood. It was solid bronze. What I want you to see is the closer you get to the throne of God in the most holy place, the more precious everything is going to become. Bronze covering wood, now solid bronze. The next thing you're going to see is gold covering wood. And then solid gold. There is a progression. The closer you get to God, the more beautiful, the more precious things are going to become. Sure, yeah, you can be saved. Enjoy life. But you're not going to have the joy of your salvation without it. This shows you here that progression, the more preciousness of the things that, uh, as you get closer to the throne room. So, there's the wood. Yes, I, I, I believe in you, Jesus. Now, wash my... Jesus, I want you to put this in a New Testament perspective. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through, through Christ who washes me. Through the word of God that washes me. Because Jesus is the word of God. And you see, it is through him. When you go and you repent of your sins and say, God, I, I'm struggling with pornography. You will not be able to beat this yourself. You need to have the word of God, Jesus, wash you. And it begins by the fear of God. And what do you, know, here, you, know, what do you require of us, O Lord? Well, fear the Lord your God, first and foremost. Walk in all his ways. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. When you are being sanctified by that word, that's when you get to go into a deeper relationship with Jesus. 
I got to be honest, I think that much of my life, I've been hanging out in the outer court. Satisfied being saved. Even really having a desire to be washed by Jesus. But never going in further. Until at least after college. If you went inside, you're going to see on the very right side, you go through the very first part of now the holy place. Okay, outer court, next holy place. On the right side, you saw what was called the table of showbread. Gold covering wood. Twelve pieces of bread on it for the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, we see the humanity and deity because Jesus is the bread of life. Full man, full God. There was a hand breath around it to not allow any bread to you know, get taken away or knocked off, you might say. Well, how is that going to happen? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't really to do that. It's a picture of something, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I want to show you again as I was saying that I think oftentimes we live in Christianity in the body. I kind of, the Bible doesn't say it this way, but I think you can picture it as the body, soul, and spirit. That we are made in the triune image of God. Or you might say a kitchen, a living room, and a dining room, or rather a bedroom. The closer you get to the throne room of God, the more precious it becomes. I think there's a lot of Christians who go to church regardless of denomination or whatever it is, but are there in the body only. That's it. But you can go closer by spending time with him. <clears throat> what is this table of showbread? <clears throat> As I said, Jesus, the bread of life. And it is a picture of communion. The priests were to eat that bread at the end of every Sabbath. The Bible is pretty clear that Jesus is this bread. Communion with God is one way you're going to have a little bit more of an intimate relationship with him. Directly in front of you is basically an altar of incense and it's where the smoke would come up, and we saw when we went through Revelation that that was a picture of prayer. The Bible clearly tells us that. <coughs> I'll show you in a moment. Directly on your left side, you have the menorah, the lampstand, which was a picture of the light of the world, Jesus, the Word of God. By the way, Jesus, the prayer. He is... There's one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus, right? So what we have, though, is a picture of communion, prayer, and the Word. Do you want to have a more intimate relationship than the outer court? Commune with Him. Are you praying? I'm not just saying, hey, you know, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let these gifts to us be blessed. Amen. Chow down. Are you spending time with Him? Are you in the Word, studying the Word? Tell you what, that is the first step in, in, in getting a little closer to God. 
You know, in 1 Corinthians 11:24, it says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. These priests that we're doing, this is, I, I mean, we can see all of these things because a table is important because this table of showbread, God invites you. When your hands are washed, when your feet are washed, then he invites you to commune with him. Not until that. What's the New Testament say about um, you know, eating with unforgiveness in your heart? If you eat and take communion with, uh, without examining yourself in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks to his own damnation. That's scripture. You're damned to hell. That's how serious this is. Wow. Wash your hands and feet before you take communion. Spiritually speaking. 1 Corinthians 10.21 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. There are many people I think in the church that are going up and taking communion but then yet they go and commune with the devil. Because they live a life in obedience to him. You are a servant of of him who you serve. Being invited to the table, as I said, was an acceptance. God accepts you, but you need to examine yourself before you enter in and partake of communion. That hand breath, some people think that it's Jesus says, you know, I will not let anyone snatch them out of my hand. Each loaf of bread was made of two-tenths of an ephah. Scripture is clear about that. Well, what's that all about? Well, in Exodus 16, it says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. This is what you are supposed to get every day day the amount of uh, manna bread that came out from heaven that they were eating in the desert how much do you get each of you take an omer in other words it was your daily portion an omer is one-tenth of an ephah it says in exodus 16 36 so if this is two-tenths of an ephah it is a double portion well, that's interesting because the Bible tells us here in Romans 8.29 that Jesus was the firstborn, right? Jesus is the double portion. The, do, the, the oldest, the firstborn, always got a double portion. And here we see Jesus having the double portion, the bread of life. The menorah, the word of God. Just a couple of quick examples. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 9, 5 and many others that we could see that Jesus is the light. The light is the word. And that's what the menorah represents. Remember in heaven there is no sun. Why? Because the lamb, Jesus, is the light. In the tabernacle, guys, if there was no light, no lamp, menorah, it's closed. It would have been pitch dark in there without it. Can't see without the light. You know what? That's exactly what the Bible tells us too. You can't see 
you're blind without Jesus. There are many who walk in darkness. They think they can see, but they can't because they don't know Jesus. This menorah had one main stand, six branches on the side, seven all total. Isaiah 11.2 says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A stem, a root. You got the main one, and that is Jesus. It says a branch shall grow out of its roots. And then look at this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and the Spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. What we see is many people believe this is the seven spirits of God that Revelation talks about. One Holy Spirit with seven attributes. And this is what we see with this lampstand. So, moving on just because I need to wrap things up here. But I think you get the picture. I'm going to leave it at that for now. Next part, the altar of incense. As I said, prayer. Um, Romans 8.26, Revelation 5.8, having harp, uh, the angels each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Um, Christ is the one that is our intercessor between God and man, is what Timothy tells us. And therefore, our prayers, when we pray to Jesus, he's the one that takes them to the Father in a sense. However that works, I don't understand that whole you know, Trinity thing and whatnot, but you, you know what I'm saying. Okay. We read in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by my mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see, Jesus was sacrificed, but when you go and wash your hands, that's a part of offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. I'm dying to self. I'm willing to serve Him. And when you do... You start read. you know what, the, the things of the world don't matter as much as it does to read your Bible, to be in prayer, and to be communing and fellowshipping with God. Things just got better. But it can get even better yet. You know, Jesus told that woman at the well, the time will come when you'll neither worship, neither here on Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And he goes on and he says that the true worshipers of God worship in spirit and truth. I don't know really all the differences of spirit and uh, soul, the differences, but let me tell you, there is a difference. Many Calvinists do not believe in the triune aspect of man, that we are dichotomous. We are a body and a soul. And soul and spirit are the same thing. Well, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword, sharp enough to penetrate between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Genesis tells us that soul is different than the spirit because animals have souls. What makes you different than an animal than if all you are is a body and a soul? The Bible says animals have souls right there in Genesis at creation. So you have a body, you have a soul, but then you also have the spirit that God breathed into you. And by the way, as we were talking about death before, when you return, the Spirit returns to Him who gave it. The bottom line is we want to worship in spirit and truth. I also think this, that there are people who go to church 
They're there in the body. They're even there in the soul. They read their Bible. They're praying and they're doing that. But it's only in the soul. And I think the soul is this, your emotions. Animals have souls. Therefore, animals have emotions, don't they? You know, I always say, you come home, the dog's all excited, and it pees right there on the carpet. Okay? They have emotions, but the spirit, that spiritual nature, is different. This is where we get words like soul food, soul music. It's the kind that just kind of makes you, you know, get excited. Guys, I know people that go to church and it's about that excitement of, oh man, I feel like, and they're looking for the warm fuzzies. And that's all they're looking for. And if they don't get the warm fuzzy, it wasn't a very good day at church. That's sad. Because let me tell you, God is there. Whether your soul is touched or not. This is why we worship in spirit and truth. And what is spirit and truth? Just that, that reasoning and understanding ability of what truth is. Before you could get out of the holy place and into the most holy place, there was a thick curtain. The Bible doesn't tell us about how thick it was, but the, the Talmud in Jewish history tells us it was so thick that two yoke of oxen couldn't tear it apart. So it was like major curtain. Much more than what we see on stages in schools. And yet something very strange happens when Jesus dies on the cross. That curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was split in two. It wasn't because some priest got it caught on the hem of his robe and it just started unraveling. This was a miracle of God. Split top, to top to bottom. What's that about? Well, the most holy place, who could get in there? Only one person. The high priest. What's that? In the description of Solomon's temple, there's, no, there's doors into the holy place, the most holy place. I think there were doors, but there's still... A curtain that was must have been there. Like was that a curtain put there by the Pharisees or something? And like symbolic, like they were No, because I think the doors are there, but I think it was like almost a double thing, a curtain and a door. I, I think. I I've got a book on the temple, I'll have to look at that again and see, but there there's no question there was a curtain because you know it even yeah. talks about it. Yeah. So what's amazing to me though is that separated the holy place to the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in there only one day a year. Now, you have free access. How did that happen? Because of Jesus. It says this. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the Hebrew there, or Greek rather, is the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, the curtain, that is his flesh. The Bible clearly tells us his broken body on that cross being broken for you was what gave you access into the most holy place. And now, the most holy place was a picture of 
heaven, heaven. We'll show you that in a moment. But now, because of Jesus, you have access to get in there. And God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're sitting in the most holy place, spiritually somehow. Only because that curtain was torn. Inside, once you got in there, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the only thing that was there with the Ark of the Covenant was inside of it, the Ten Commandments, kind of like God the Father, Aaron's staff that had budded, a picture of the Holy Spirit, and a gold jar of manna, the bread of life, Jesus. You see the Trinity all there, at the throne of God and the cherub over it. And it was by his blood that allows us to get in there. This most holy place was a perfect cube, just like we see in Revelation, out of the New Jerusalem comes down this perfect cube, the, the heaven. So, I already talked about the cherub being there. Here's just some scripture verses telling you telling you that the cherub are always around the throne of God. Um, and then again, here are the three things in that uh, Ark of the Covenant. So what you're seeing in this tabernacle is to get to the throne room of God and to His very, very presence where you are seated with Him, you have to go through Jesus. You have to have your wash your hands and feet washed to, to really experience the, the joy of your salvation. And then you need to be communing, praying, fellowshipping with Him, and, and being in His Word. And when that happens, that's how you get to know Jesus. And someday, I think that most holy place ultimately is we don't have full access to that until he comes back. And that the picture that the tabernacle is presenting is much like the festivals. It's not done yet. It's not over. We're, we're still waiting for that to come down. So this is just one scripture verse for each part of it. I'm not going to go through them because I'm out of time. But it's just kind of a review. I was hoping to get a little bit further tonight having another 10-15 minutes. I'm not going to take that. But what I might do is maybe one of these evenings here do a little extra to build on this with the high priest and some of the things that he did and how Jesus becomes our priest, our prophet, our king. Just a, a little snippet nutshell that I find amazing how Jesus kept the law fully. When he goes before Caiaphas, he's silent as a lamb is before its shearers. Doesn't say a word until Caiaphas asks him a question, and then he answers. And you go, why was he not answering anybody's questions? And then, now he speaks. Because the law said that. That if the high priest asked you a question, you have to give an answer or else it's sin. According to Torah. That's what it says in Leviticus. I'll show you that later. So he keeps the law, he answers it. 
He answers, quoting Psalm 110, which claimed him to be the Messiah, which caused Caiaphas to be very upset, and he rends his garments, tears it. Caiaphas broke the law. In the Old Testament, it will tell you, I'll show you this later, you're not allowed to rend the garment. As a matter of fact, they sewed it extra thick to keep it from rending easily. And when you rent that garment, it made you unclean. Caiaphas became unable to offer the sacrifice that year. I don't know who made the Passover sacrifice that, you know, in the physical sense, the lamb, but it wasn't Caiaphas that year. He made himself unable to do so. But the plan was Jesus, our high priest, would be making the sacrifice that year. And he is going to go through every step that the high priest would do. And that is why he says the words he says. That's why he says it is finished. Because that, those are the very words that the high priest said. That is why he is going to say, I thirst. Why he is going to refuse the drink. Why he is doing what he is doing on the cross is fulfilling the role of the priest. Wow. Why his clothes? They cast lots for his clothing. Why is that recorded? Because he was fulfilling the role. His garment would not be torn. Everything in scripture is there because he is our Messiah. He is our Savior. And because of that, I want to be as close to him as possible. And so we're closing on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our sacrifice, our temple, our tabernacle, our, our everything. God, just give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Wash our hands and feet with your word. Let us be separate from this world. And let us draw near to you with a clean heart. Let us just desire and seek you as a hidden treasure. And may you reveal yourself to, to each and every one of us here. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.